Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to episode 141 of Wait, What? A Comics and Pop Culture Peace Link. Today, Graham McMillan joins me to talk comics, whether those with Batman or those without, and ends up talking about movies, both hunger-based and those that are not so hunger-based. Among the subjects touched on, uh, Forever Evil, the Wonder Woman casting, Sintatulo by Cameron Stewart, the Tony Daniel issues of Detective Comics, the first Hunger Games movie, Letter 44, Rogue's Rebellion, the New 52 trade of Batman Inc. by Grant Morrison, the second Hunger Games movie, and much, much more. Some slapdash show notes are available at savagecrick.com, and we always welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff, Len- <laughs> Jeff! Jeff Lester! Jeff! 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 Graham, are you there? No, I'm Hello. kidding. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> December. Wait, what, listeners? Hi. <laughs> oh, we're just off and running already. My goodness. Hi, uh, Sally. Okay, so listeners, as you are uh, here, listen to this. It is uh, Monday, the 9th, I guess, of December, or or some point after that. As we're recording, it is December the fifth. It is Thursday, the day that Nelson Mandela has died. In fact, he's just died like two hours before we recorded. Yes. Um, did you see Fred Van Lente's hilariously sick tweet? No, I did not. What was it? The saddest part is that we never got to ask Mandela what he thought of the Wonder Woman casting. <laughs> You know, I have to say, the thing that's really sad is I was making a list of stuff that we were going to talk about or should talk about, um, because that's how disorganized I am. And I jumped on Twitter right before checking with you to see if, um, basically, we were ready to go. And that's when I found out that Nelson Mandela had died. Like, literally, like, two minutes before this. Oh, yeah, it's been nuts. Uh, I have have honestly spent my day... Uh, writing up fake Christmas episodes of television shows for a Wired piece. <laughs> uh, and so, like, I've been in this really weird headspace. I've written up fake episodes of Mad Men, The Walking Dead, Homeland, uh, House of Cards, and Game of Thrones. This is perfect. This is, I assume, uh, so Christmas-based, because, of course, yeah, you yeah. love Christmas. Christmas yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know when it's going to go live. I don't even know if all of those are going to go live. Um but so yeah, I've been in this like really, you know, somewhat sarcastic, somewhat weirdly holiday-ish moods. And so I finished that and I'm like, oh, I've got, you know, 20 minutes until we do the podcast. I should check and see what's happening in the world. Oh, shit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have to say, knowing, uh, you know, sort of since both of us were kind of trained uh, by um, doing the fanboy, fanboy Rampage column for the Comics Experience newsletter... I'm sure those parodies are going to be just awesome. <clears throat> um, if they do not all go live, Jeff, I will send you the ones that don't. That would be great. That would uh, be great. It's particularly amusing for me because I wrote the Homeland one having never seen an episode of Homeland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must have been enjoyable. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. Here's the funny thing. I've read so much about Homeland and I've seen so many parodies of Homeland right. that I kind of feel like I could convincingly do a Homeland parody. <laughs> Uh, we'll see. Well, the internet, as we all know, is a harsh mistress. So if it does go live, then I'm sure everyone will tell me what I've done wrong. Oh, yes. Extensively. Extensively. 
So. Hey, talking about that and mm-hmm. talking about what Fred Finlanti was, what did you think of the Wonder Woman casting? And more importantly, the fact that Wonder Woman is going to be in the Man of Steel sequel. Uh, well, you know, okay, so... <sighs> you, I, I Saying I really don't give a shit is a perfectly valid response. Well, no, 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 but, see, but as you know, of course, it, the, the great thing about recording this is this is like December 5th. So, which is, this is the one year anniversary of... Uh, the first time I took my niece, uh, June, into a comic book store for, like, the first oh, time and bought her a yes. comic book. So I I spent actually a certain amount of time trying to think, like, am I actually going to, like, celebrate this anniversary and, like, get in touch with her parents and, like, drag her to the comic book store? And I decided not to. I decided that would be the sort of thing that I would do once she was sort of older and cognizant. Like, frankly, the last time I saw her just a few weeks ago, I took her into a comic book store. So it's not like it's a... You know. it, it would be, it would be something that would mean something to you, but might not mean anything to her. Yeah, she'd be like oh, this is what I do with Jeff now. As exactly. You've been like, no, but it's a year because when she's what four? I mean, when when you're that age, mm-hmm. a year is a very difficult concept to really grasp. It totally is. She doesn't she doesn't get it. Yeah, so she's not even four. So yeah, it was kind of like, eh, I'll hold off. But of course, as you know, she loves her some Wonder Woman. So. I kind of had this thing of like, well, on the one hand, it's great that Wonder Woman's going to be in a movie, even though it's not going to be a movie that June's going to be able to watch probably for years and years. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just kind of like Man of Steel follow up. I, I, you know, because there was a lot of people who were really upset over the idea that, as you know, from the way you phrased the question, you quite clearly know that people are upset that Wonder Woman is not getting her own movie. You know, um, and my strongest takeaway about this Man of Steel sequel is Superman kind of isn't either. You know what I mean? Like he got. <laughs> well, that's just it. At this point, they might as well call it Justice League, especially if the rumors about Flash being in the movie as well are right. in it. Right. So, I mean, to me, it's just kind of that deal of the man, the what I, I could be wrong. I'm sure in a way this was their entire you know, plan from the get-go or whatever. But I can't help but sort of think that based on the box office of Man of Steel, they were kind of like, you know what, Superman is our, like, you know, he's our other big heavy hitter by Batman, besides Batman, and we barely got our money back, you know? Like, I'm sure they eked out a profit, but they are looking for the big mega jackpots. That's why people make these type of movies at this scale so i i kind of think that really i don't i'm not too upset that wonder woman isn't getting her own film because i really do think that after the superman movie did what it did they're like the only way we're going to make this work is by going with a you know kind of throwing everyone into it and then trying to figure out a way to you know and then maybe spin them off you know what I mean? Sort of just oh, the opposite of way they did the Avengers movie. So, huh. Interesting. That that was not my take at all. Oh, yeah? I, I agree that um, I find it really hard to get upset about the Wonder Woman getting her own movie thing, if only because, it, it, yeah, Superman isn't really anymore. Batman isn't. Batman's getting reintroduced via, quote-unquote, guest star role as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Flash sounds like he's going to. And also... I have this horrible feeling that's just the way they're going to do it from now on because that's the way they've been taught to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much how Marvel does it. Mm-hmm. With the exception of Captain America and Thor, 
And obviously Iron Man, everyone else has been like, you know, and here is Hawkeye and Thor, here's Black Widow and Avengers, here's Nick Fury and Iron Man. Like, you you do the stealth introductions. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But I didn't take it as Man of Steel was not a biggest hit as they want, therefore they're going for the Avengers. I took it as they're desperately trying to catch up to the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, okay, the next one will just be your Avengers. Yeah. I I think that they just don't have enough confidence because, I mean, in theory, you you know, if you really think that you could do pull another Avengers, I, the nice thing about making a Captain America movie and a Thor movie before you make an Avengers movie is if they're hits, you get all that money, too. You know what I mean? And it does build uh, well, a certain I'm, amount of momentum. But you've also got to remember, like, Warner's is probably very nervous about this, having tried that with Green Lantern, which was not a hit. Exactly. Between Green Lantern being... See, and that's why I honestly think if Man of Steel had been just an enormous, huge, like, Batman-level hit, then we would be looking at a very different scenario. But But Man of Steel was a big film. It was a big film, but I don't think it was, like, Batman Begins big or... or, I I think it it was bigger than Batman Begins. Oh, well, okay. I, I, but, uh, I, well, it wasn't as big as Dark Knight, and that's the thing. Like between Batman Begins and you know uh, Man of Steel, I completely forgot the name of Man of Steel for a second. <laughs> like you had the Dark Knight, and you right. had Avengers, and you had Iron Three, mm-hmm. which were mammoth hits. Yeah, and I think that really like changed the landscape. I think that if those three films hadn't been quite as big as they had been, right, then Man of Steel would have been like, hey, let's you know go crazy, right. But and I think then, you, exactly. because you got those three, you mm-hmm. really have the, the nervousness. But I mean, Man of Steel is. Honestly, it was big. I'm not diminishing it by all, by all means, but I do think that that what at the <laughs> at the fourth level that they're successful playing film for. of the year fourth. Yep, it's not so great though. It's pretty, it's pretty great Jeff, if you think about how many films have been released. Well, this sure, year. I know, but what are fourth. the movies? What are the movies ahead of it? Iron Man three, Despicable Man two, and The Hunger Games two. All right. So, I mean, okay, one could say it's great. like, yeah, sure. That's it's like the, the, one of the strongest. first non-sequel mm-hmm. in the list. <laughs> right. The first non-sequel, albeit established legacy character, like the asterisk just gets so convoluted you know what, at that you know what's point. You kind of crazy? Gravity is the first non-franchise movie. It's the most successful non-franchise movie of the year. Right. Right. That's kind of That's- amazing. It's great, but mm-hmm. also kind of nuts. <laughs> Did you see that thing uh, on the net, which I thought was absolutely amazing? A great little piece of numbers crunching where they talked about the fact that Warner Brothers had, I think, I'm sorry, is it Warner Brothers? It is that released Gravity. They were insistent that kind of like they had to have Clooney on board in order to get the movie made. Um, but, you know, basically, and they, they were going to market it as a. George Clooney, Sandra Bullock movie, even though Sandra Bullock technically has had more successes over the yes. last decade. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought that was fascinating thinking. It really was. It was It was nuts. Mm-hmm. But part of that, part of the reason they uh, marked it that way was also to keep the quote-unquote secret that it's the Sandra Bullock movie. Uh, right. When it was in production, it was definitely being uh, sort of written up as, and purposely written up as, there are two astronauts, one of them survives. Mm-hmm. And the idea of bringing someone like George Clooney on was that everyone would be like, oh, it'll be George Clooney. He's the bigger star. Right. 
Right, and then there's. But yeah, there it's, but it's fascinating that we think of George Clooney as a bigger star when Sandra Bullock is by far, when you compare them, the bigger star. Yeah, is by far the bigger star. So, so there's a lot of stuff going on here uh, when it comes to the Wonder Woman choice, because because that's the thing. I actually, I actually, I don't know. Did you see the um, trailer for the Wonder Woman movie? Um, by which I mean the three hundred sequel. Um, oh, yes, I saw the trailer for the 300 sequel. Oh, man, that made me um, put off YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I was really amused by it for a number of levels. One, part of me was like, yeah, you can almost squint and pretend it's a Wonder Woman movie. You know, it's just a Wonder Woman movie that hates women. Uh, two, uh, Frank Miller's name is... Nowhere, and I mean nowhere on there. They're so playing up the the Zack Snyder part. And... Well, to be fair, so would you. <laughs> really? It's based on a Frank Miller graphic novel, which has not come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Zack Snyder, meanwhile, has made this Man of Steel movie, which, as we've already said, is the fourth most successful movie of the year. Sure, yeah. What are you going to say? From the guy who brought you Sin City. Yeah, you can remember that. And the spirit. <laughs> I'm just saying... I'm just saying by saying all you you didn't you didn't have to give him a separate title card, but if you'd said from Zack Snyder, blah 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 blah, and Frank Miller, blah 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 blah, you know what I mean? Because as it is, but the but fact why do you that say it for Frank Miller, like, well, how do you sell him to modern mainstream audiences? Well, apart from the fact that in theory they've already sold him to modern mainstream audiences, you know what I mean? Like, I would actually say the point there is kind of um it is to is to kind of try and make sure that you've still got the nerds kind of on your side you know and and i kind of got the feeling from that maybe they're just kind of like oh we got Zack snyder in there Zack snyder is gonna like that's that's all that's all the nerd cred we need but i don't i don't know i just kind of thought that it was sort of Time, I, you know? I'm going to throw you uh, in the opposite direction. How much nerd cred do you think Frank Miller still has? That's actually I've, outside cool. of Batman. Right. How much nerd cred do you think Frank Miller still has? That's a good question. That is a good question because I mean, between uh, Holy Terror, right? I was going to say Holy Terror and the Spirit. He's actually sort of done a one-two punch in the opposite direction. I guess maybe exactly. if you're... like, I will destroy my nerd cred. And really, if you're like, I needed 300. 300 is like the Frank Miller comic that nerds didn't really embrace. No, I know, until after it came out. But I mean, and there's Sin City. I mean, there was a time there where, where Frank Miller had some heat, and he's still one of the more recognized comic book creators in that sort of strange, you know... Far from the bleeding edge, but far from just the, you know, completely out of it herd. You know what I mean? Like, it still kind of, I think, has some, would have a little bit of pull. But you might be right. You could, they could just be like Frank Miller's, like, you know, maybe he's got a strong pull now with fragrance commercials, you know, people. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, Chris Evans fans really respond well to Frank Miller's name now, you know. I, <laughs> I don't. I don't. Oh man, Chris Evans, but uh, <laughs> that's that's a sad, sad state of affairs. Best part is, you said that Frank Miller, he'd probably like threaten to punch you in the face and then be like, "I'm gonna tear up," and then he just search for something. Well, it's sad. In New York Times, I'll tear that up. Is that a variety? I'll tear that up. Do even still print variety? I don't think they do, right? I think variety's just outlined now. Dude, um, I'm going to just edit all this part out considering you technically, you know, I'm like, don't you work for, like, the Hollywood Reporter? I it's- do. I do. But that's 
I no, they definitely still print something because I've had something. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying the fact that you work for the Hollywood Reporter and are completely unsure whether or not Variety is still being published is like. Well, the website. I know the website exists. I just don't think the magazine does. Oh man, we're just off to such a good start on this. Anyway. I, uh, right, whether or not Variety actually still gets published or not, uh, Frank Miller, it doesn't matter what I would say, Frank Miller would try to punch me and tear something up anyway, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I don't know. What would he tear up? He'd tear up uh, the Villains Month hardcover collection from DC. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, a lovely segue. Is that, did we, was that the one we discussed or no? Uh, no, did we discuss it? I no, there was some other hardcover. The I, I assume you got the Villains Month hardcover from DC. Oh no, 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 <laughs> no you that, didn't. That's like a hundred fifty dollar book. No, I'm dude. Not some of that. the stuff that they've sent you, it does not surprise me. If they're kind of no, like they would, they would not send that. Okay, no, no, okay. They, they, I, they would not send that. But I have been rereading the Villains Month issues oh, uh, over the last couple of weeks, in part because uh, I've been rereading Forever Evil. Hmm. Mm. Uh, and here's the weird thing. I like the Villains Month stuff now. Really? Yeah, it's really strange. I It makes me realize a couple of things, one of which is by putting it all out in a month mm-hmm. and not having any counter programming, i.e. the regular issues, right. it completely turns you against it. Right. Because Villains Month really only works as counter programming, mm-hmm. especially because most of it is like flashback stuff. <clears throat> right. Um, but when you're then, you know, three months into Forever Evil, and you've seen, you know, this is where the character exits now. Mm-hmm. The idea of like, oh, I, you know, I'm weirdly interested in how Black Adam got this way. I can go back and read that one shot that I read and I don't remember. Oh, it turns out it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a strange thing where things that before I was like, oh, no, this is this is dire and I've no interest in it. I'm now going back and rereading and being like, oh, it's nowhere near as bad as I thought. Huh. And it, it and... Because they, it specifically ties into the four evil storyline, or just more in the sense of when you go back, like it's just more of a. a... Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I've gone back and reread some of them. Some of them are as bad as I remember. Okay. Uh, and for the most part, those are the ones that I have no more connection with. For example, I went back and reread the Cyborg Superman issue mm-hmm. uh, because Cyborg Superman. I read. I don't even know where Cyborg Superman is appearing, but I read somewhere someone going, "Oh yeah, it's Supergirl's dad." And I was like, oh, is it? And sure enough, it says that really clearly in the one show, which I have read. <laughs> oh, I totally missed that. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I, I guess I was not paying attention by the time I finally read this one shot. Right. Uh, but then that was much better. But then I went back and read the Eclipse of one shot, mm-hmm. which is, is as dire as I remember it being. Mm-hmm. So it's not like everything has gotten better. Like mm-hmm. the, the Trigon issue of mm-hmm. this Teen Titans thing is still terrible. Mm-hmm. But uh, the... Uh, like the Lex Luthor and Bizarro issues make so much fucking more sense now that you've read Forever Evil. Oh, I see. In fact, they work a setup. So mm-hmm. do all the Flash, issue, flash issues. Mm-hmm. The Grudge and the Rogues issues make so much more sense now that Rogue's Rebellion is going on. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, it's actually setting up plots for that miniseries. Huh. Hmm. That is that's good to know. I I'm still somewhat for whatever, for whatever reason. You know, it's funny. I paid the money, picked up Forever Evil number one, and at the end of it was like, that's it. I'm not getting back on. It doesn't matter how good people tell me that it is. I'm not going to get back on. You know. I, and I think that's completely fair. If I hadn't gotten Forever Evil two and three as comps, I probably would have been the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So is that, uh, is that how many issues are out, or is the fourth issue out and you picked it up on your own? The or? fourth issue is out uh, Christmas Eve or Boxing Day, whichever day uh, they're doing that. Right. I think it's Christmas Eve. Um, it's that and Justice League are the two DC comics that are being released that day. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and apparently issue four has like, you know, shocking, last page reveal, holy shit, you'll crap yourself for Christmas. Um <laughs> I have to I, you say, know, crap yourself for Christmas does sound like one of those uh, terrible, like, charity singles that they had going on back in the late 80s, early 90s, you know? Uh, but yeah, so the, the, only the three issues are out right now uh-huh. uh, for every evil. And, but, like, I've been sent those. I've been sent the comps of the first issues of all the spinoffs. Mm-hmm. But, like, yesterday, I bought the second issues of, of Rogue Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bought the Suicide Squad tie-in purely because Omak's in it. And I was super curious to see what Omak's doing. Uh, yeah, I have to admit, I I was kind of curious about that. I had a, you know, it's it's funny. What's great is it sounds like you got to the shop. And I did, did. not. So a lot of my reading is for stuff that is not exactly new. Um, but as you probably know, there was that Cyber Monday sale uh, on Comixology of all 56 of the DC's new 52 um, trade paperbacks. Yeah, which I actually meant to buy a couple. I completely forgot. (laughs) 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 I I was too busy working of all ridiculous things. Oh, of course. I finished working. I was like, ah, screw it. I'm putting my computer off. Dude, you you could have bought them right from your... I swear to goodness. I know. I was right there. My goodness. So what would you have bought, just out of curiosity? Because I spent Uh, a lot of time looking at those trade paperbacks with a very strong what would Graham McMillan do uh, in the back of my head. I own many of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I didn't own any of them already, I would have gotten the Action Comics, I would have gotten the Wonder Woman, I would have gotten the Flash, and I probably would have gotten the Batman. Mm. Okay. And maybe Green Lantern, depending on how charitable I was feeling. Right, right. Um, as it was, because they were cheap and because I have this strange Justice League affliction, mm-hmm. I might have uh, got the Justice League Dark and I might have gotten Justice League International. Oh, interesting. Wow. The Justice League International, that would have been a... I, in part because it's a series that quite clearly failed. Like, mm-hmm. my whole... It's something that went hideously wrong, hideously quickly, and I must read it. Impulse right. kicked in. Right. Right. Well, that's actually one of the things that was really fun looking at all those titles. And fun is should be in heavy quotes, I guess. I was like, man, look at all these titles. And there was a little bit of the, Jesus, so many of these are gone already. Some of these have been gone long enough that I completely forgot they even existed. Completely. Yeah, exactly. But here's the thing. Like, for that sale, you could have gotten all eight issues of OMAC for four ninety nine. Well, see, that's it. And I... I talked myself out of that. I had the little Graham McMillan voice in my head talk me out of that because it would have been... Because you like, owned them. <laughs> exactly. That's precisely what you said. So um, No, but like uh, you could have gotten all of the Static series, all of the Mr. Terrific series, mm-hmm. all of the Hawk and Dove series. Right. Like all of those things, the entire series for internet they're all cancelled date issues in. Right. Right. So I so I really did have that thing of like and it's kind of a shame because I did I didn't turn around and and repick up Omac although I I really that was the one I threw in the cart took out of the cart threw in the cart took out of the cart um I ended up picking up uh Batman Incorporated you know um 
which struck me struck me as a very good deal. Uh, and and uh, then the opposite of the end of that, which I have, I I don't I keep wanting to apologize for, even though one of the, it's it's absolutely I'm so glad I picked it up was the Detective Comics trade by Tony Daniels. Oh, you are you are secretly a Tony Daniels fan. I I love his shit on detective comics man i you know it's one of those weird like i still don't i should go because like the local branch of the library has the battle for the cowl or whatever whatever the storyline was that he actually wrote way back when i was like why would i bother but detective comics holy crap man that stuff that is like i was reading it i was like this shit is so dumb, and yet, <laughs> see, the, here's the so way. Wait, so it's it's not his art you like; it's his writing you like. Oh, it's the it's the condom combum. It's the condom of the two. It's the combination of the two. It really is the combination of the two. I don't because it because he does have that like you know sort of faux Jim Lee kind of thing. I'm like, oh, it's kind of you know, it's. It starts off attractive, but it's just the fact that his stories get so dumb. And because he's his own artist, he spends way more time trying to sell you on it than he would if it was someone else's dumb script. Or from the other times that I've seen where Tony Daniels was writing and someone took over, took over, you know, the art duties, then that other person, that other person's like, why am I trying to? But, you know, he's just so eager. Like, there's so many new characters in that Detective Comics run who are kind of terrible, but like it's... if I had known, yes, if I had known so interesting his writing, I would have told you to pick up the the uh, Hawkman collection, which he wrote but didn't draw. Ah, uh, yeah, I keep forget. I looked at that and I remember thinking like, oh wait, who's? I totally didn't didn't even. I thought I was it's, like, it's a mess on an amazing scale. Yeah, on an amazing scale, and I can't even remember which writer takes over after he gets off. Like I want to say he's gone by like issue seven or eight. Yeah, and then Liefeld but, uh, comes in, isn't it? Is it Liefeld? That's what I thought. That's there, I, there's someone in between. There's like a, a scripter or someone in between because there's definitely a point where the writer is like, I'm just trying to tidy this shit up. <laughs> Yeah, you know, honestly, if I had if I had known that, I probably would have picked that up. It's uh, it's terrible, Jeff. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, and it's kind of amazing how much he jettisons that is like completely solid mythology mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. favor of like nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, he replaces because Hawkman has a, or at least had a really strong backstory slash mythology. Uh, when Jeff Johns was through with it, but then didn't they like end up throwing half of that out later when Jimmy yeah, and then, came and on? Then, uh, no, uh, Jim Starlin's the one who took it all out, and then they put it back in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they basically had uh, Jim Starlin be like, everything you know is a lie, and then someone else afterwards were like, no, that was a lie, everything you knew was the truth. <laughs> yeah, see, that makes sense to me. That, that makes uh, sense to but me. no, like the whole reincarnated, uh, you know, reincarnated lovers um, thing, like mm-hmm. is is for me resonant. It's a really good thing. Yeah, uh, I, as is the whole Thanagarian cop thing. If you want to use that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Daniel's literally gets rid of both. <laughs> he's uh, like, here's a dude, right? And he's got living metal that goes into his skin and gives him wings. The end. And you're like, what the fuck is this? What have you done? What? what? Why did you do that? What? Uh, no one has? 
I, well, that's actually one of the things that's kind of great about his detective comics. Like his first storyline is, you know, starts off with, of course, the Joker and the Joker getting his face skinned. Um, and then with right. And then, yeah, and the Joker disappears. Then it goes on to, this is one of the things that actually I kind of like about it. Again, it's ridiculously almost kind of presumptuous, but also sort of smart. He's like, okay, here's my Joker story. The Joker's just in the first issue, and it just goes on to, to introduce the Dollmaker and, and all the Dollmaker villains. Then the second arc is the Penguin, and it throws has the Penguin on the cover, and... They literally, you know, the penguin just moves into a supporting character, and it's all about snakeskin, who's like, who I honestly sort of feel like Tony Daniel had a discussion about Clayface with a Batman editor, and the Batman editor somehow was unable to convey to Tony Daniel that Clayface already existed. So you get this character called Snakeskin, who's like a dude who basically has, can change his face and shape into anything, but his face is sort of, it's slowly falling apart, and so he looks like he's this faceless assassin, you know, who could be anyone, right? And it's, I am on board. <laughs> and it's, it's just kind of like, so you didn't, didn't feel like using Clayface for that one, but no, 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 because this guy's snakeskin. And then even better is snakeskin's not nearly as impressive as, and I don't even remember if she ended up with a name, but the this this awesome green-haired girl with an eye patch and a maid's outfit who's like the ultimate assassin, just great. I mean, I love that. It was great. It, and she ends up being the... It's the other thing that I love that's fucking phenomenal is like Tony Daniels Detective Comics is Bruce Wayne is being like completely um, hounded slash courted by this female reporter. And again, it's like the it's like the guy sat down, the editor sat down and told Tony Daniel about Vicky Vale, but somehow failed to convey that Vicky Vale already existed. So she's got some name. It's like you know, Julia Binbo or something like that. And then, of course, the the one-eyed perfect assassin in the maid's outfit is her sister. So it's so it's like all this stuff. I'm like, oh, this no, is kind no, of... No, here's the thing. Yeah. While I really want to make fun of that plot twist, hmm? the first thing it made me think of was Batwoman. Oh, and yeah. in fact, the Batwoman supervillain is her sister, her That's long right. lost twin sister. Her long yeah. lost twin sister, exactly. So, so the reporter who's like facing down her sister, who's now like an evil assassin with like one eye and a maid's outfit. I mean, it just really was. I just there's part of me that really was like that came so much closer to Bot- Batman as like insane bullshit manga. It so totally scratched that little itch for me. The other thing that's great is there's this um, there's this scene real early on in Detective Comics uh, in Daniel's run where basically the Penguin for one of the like the world's dumbest subplots. And admittedly, I swear to God, I read this entire collection in all of maybe seventeen minutes. You know, but the Penguin. I, I... Probably deserves. Like, Seriously, that was probably about half as long as it took Tony Daniel to write it. Uh, the Penguin is basically has pulled all these um, 
wannabe crime lords of Gotham City and is basically like, you guys all run your various territories, but, you know, you should put all your money in my bank because I am a floating iceberg casino out in the middle of Gotham Bay. And therefore, I don't know. I don't have any ATM fees. Like, honestly. Everything's better. Come on. Exactly. Iceberg, you guys. Come on. Fuck you go wrong. Dude, come on. Whenever you need money, hop on a boat, go out to the iceberg, stand in line at the casinos. You know, like, it really is. So so all these people are like, hmm, I don't know, Penguin. How do we know we can trust you? And then they're like, okay, but we'll do it. And then he's like, ha-ha, fools, I'm going to rip you off. And it really is beautiful because there's just this level of, like, okay, Tony Daniels so clearly got sidetracked by thinking about all the awesome scenes he was going to have with Snake Skin and Lady Eyepatch that this all fell by the side. But okay, so but what's great is there's all these other super, the real purpose is to have these other supervillains that um Tony Daniel has created that are going to encounter Batman later. One of whom is a guy who basically looks like uh, Kool-Aid Man, if Kool-Aid Man was like a radioactive waste bucket. And this amazing, in fact, now that I think about it, I think part of why I love Tony Daniels' run is most of his villains now resemble food icons. Because there's a guy who sort of looks like Mr. Peanut, if Mr. Peanut was a light bulb, like a light bulb with like a top hat and who talks with like a British accent. I don't remember if he has a monocle or not. But these are all characters that I think in theory... Tony Daniel has Batman encounter in later issues until his brain explodes and they take him off the book. But one of the characters is like this invisible man who's got like glasses and like an ascot, you know? And I'm just like... Wait, wait, no, 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 no. Is he really or is he the Gentleman Ghost, Jeff? Oh, he, well, no, the Gentleman Ghost has a top hat. Uh, yeah, well, eh, traditionally, maybe not in the new 52. Okay, maybe this is the new Gentleman Ghost, in which case the Gentleman Ghost has really like tweeted himself go. up. Yeah, I mean, it's really just like, eh, you know, what's this? What's the modern New 52 equivalent? Oh my god, equivalent? he's yes. the dude ghost, Jeff. He's the dude, dude Je- ghost. Jeff, no more dude ghost. <laughs> that would be great. I would also accept Ghost Dandy as, anyway, so he looks, he kind of looks like a, um, he kind of looks a little bit like Claude Rains meets like a dude who might subscribe to the New Yorker, except he's invisible, right? So I'm like, oh man, who's that dude? And the great thing is, is while reading Batman Incorporated, you know, the the New 52 trade, which is, of course, the, you know, Grant Morrison's reboot with Chris Burnham, there's a point where there's a meeting of all these people for the League of Assassins meeting, and the invisible guy is there. It's the same guy. It's kind of great. There's like this invisible person with like glasses and like an ascot. And all he does is like show up. Well, it's not really an ascot. It's like a smoking jacket. But he basically shows up as a smoking jacket to all these super villain meetings. It's like, I don't know if that's like something that the Batman editor like totally demanded. Oh, and this is the other thing. The cover of Detective Comics number two is Batman sitting down. Like, it's literally Batman strapped into the bat toilet or whatever, and Tony Daniels, draw, you know, drew it, and I'm just like, well... Oh, I, I'm Googling that shit right now. So, Brent. yeah, it's the cover of Detective Comics number two. It's it's The great thing is, because it's Tony Daniels and he's working off that, like, Jim Lee thing, it's such a busy cover, you can't really tell that Batman's sitting down, but... Oh, no, it, no you totally can. I'm yeah. looking at it right now. You, you very much can. Yeah, he's really sitting down. I know. I was like, did, I, I'm sure someone... 
it's it's Batman just hanging out as well. Yeah, <laughs> his arms are up. Seriously, it's Batman playing PlayStation, and it really is one of those weird like, wow, they could not. I mean, I know what it's supposed to be. If you look more closely, I believe oh, he's, he's in the bat plane. He's in the bat plane. Submersible. Uh, it, I think he's actually pulling a loop. Oh, he is because the city's at the top. Yeah. It, see, so there you go. There's the design genius of Tony Daniel at work. Um is what we thought was him on the bat toilet. He's flying a bat plane upside down and looking pretty bored, I have to say. But it really was kind of great being like, you know, maybe this is maybe this is how this whole thing got out of control. Like, that issue came out, the editor got called on the carpet and was told, like, never show Batman sitting down on the cover ever again. And basically it no, just wait, escalated wait, from really, there. Really? Really? Dude! Graham, how are we going to grow our rich culture of urban mythology if you don't if you don't help me out a little bit here? No, but the Batman sitting down thing has been done. Who else did the Batman sitting down thing? Oh, tons, tons of people. Of course, they had the examples. But the thing is, the thing about Detective Comics number two is, to me, that is literally the same editor who must have told uh, Paul what's his face to go, you know, hang. Like literally said, you can't show Batman sitting down. You know, and then was turning around and being like, hey, Tony Daniel, great job you're doing with that Batman sitting cover. Keep that coming. Because what he's doing is, but he's not just sitting down. He's sitting down, but he's flying a plane. It's not like he's just, just sitting down and taking it easy. No, no, he's no. He's sitting down and he's looping. The, it's it's passive and yet active at sure. the same time. Yeah, I know. I know. I know, Graham. It's beautiful. That, that's what makes a difference. Yeah. So some people on Twitter might have seen the amazing out-of-context uh, comic book panel where Batman is talking, wondering about why the Joker is naked, and I'll probably put that in on the show notes. But that is also another amazing panel from Tony Daniels' run. And it, it really is. There's I There was just so much energy in it. By contrast, the Court of Owls trade that I bought on a... Electronically, like I don't know, two three weeks ago, I think back back when there was an earlier iteration of the sale, I had it on the Kindle. Oh, is that is that the trade that's basically all the crossovers? Uh, no, it's sorry, it's just I think it's literally the first six issues of the Batman reboot. So, okay. um, it's fascinating how much of that is kind of similar, I suppose, in that it's very like. The thing that I do like is Tony Daniel is going, especially in that first storyline with the the doll maker, is really going for sort of a weird gothic horror, urban horror kind of take on it. You know, I mean, he's basically, you know, it's quasi Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, in terms of the weird family of cannibal mutants who are, you know, fighting Batman, but, you know, doing the bidding of this absolute weirdo genius who likes, who, who, who takes out, he, he literally steals Commissioner Gordon's kidney for no reason at one point. <laughs> I just, lo- I just love that stuff. It really is. Do you remember that, like, that was the new 50 year where they also had, like, David Finch being like, yeah, I'm doing supernatural Batman. It was the point where they were desperately trying to make Batman, like, a horror character for some right. reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were really going for that. And I have to say, I'm sort of kicking myself for not picking that up, too, because that would have been a great read for, you know, whatever it was, three ninety nine, four ninety nine. But I, I really did find myself, like, on a scale of, like... I don't know, you know, dull to awesome. Like, I have to say, until, until, uh, if it wasn't for Greg Capullo, uh, Scott Snyder's Batman, those, those first couple issues, 
a little on the dull side, you know, kind of tedious. I know that that's probably exactly what you were saying from day one, but I mean, and don't get me wrong, I still love Capullo's artwork and the and this the scene where he ends up in you know wandering around in the labyrinth acting cray cray is just like really gorgeous art, like and amazing coloring. But like, well, what I find wonderful about you is you are so. Um, critical of so many things in comics, but the combination of Batman and OK art <laughs> will, will overrule everything. And I'm not totally true. OK art. Kabul's a really good artist. Right. Like even Tony Daniels. Right. Like Batman and art that is palatable. Yeah. It, no, you're it's absolutely like, right. No, it's fine. I I'm fine with that. It's yeah. kind of amazing. It's like because it, I mean I totally have that as well. Give me like a vaguely passable Green Lantern story. Right. And I'm like, I'll pay money for that shit. No, and see, and this is this is where I think you're being, uh, sadly, far too generous with me. Because the fact of the matter is, there's a point where I prefer, like, out of all, like, all my highfalutin tastes, I love a stupid Batman story. Like, a stupid Batman story, I really love, as long as it's not a dull Batman story, if it's, but if it's I just actively like- dumb... You yeah, know what I, I mean? I think that's great. I think that's completely understandable. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm on board with that. G- give me a stupid but fun story of anyone. Right. And I'm far more on board than like a story that takes itself really seriously but is dull. Well, and that's it. I really did have that moment. Like this Tony Daniel stuff was utter crap. But I really kind of was like, like are, are, have our comics gotten – too competent, you know what I mean? Yes. Like, have they creeped up yes, to that level? Yes, they have. Oh my goodness! Okay, so no, you're. But they, there. but they really have. Think mm-hmm. about it. Like, look across the Marvel and DC lines as a whole. Mm-hmm. And there's so much work that you're like, well, that is completely professionally done, but I have absolutely no reaction to it. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, our, our comics definitely have gotten too competent. I mm-hmm. would much rather read like you know Bob Penny's Teen Titans. Right. That Scott Lobdell's, even though theoretically Scott Lobdell's is more professional, right? But it's dull as dishwater. Interesting, because it it almost sounds like Scott Lobdell is closer, like is closer in the new Fifty Two to Bob Haney. I mean, it's still a reach, but well, you know what I, I mean. In a, in a, uh, he's a little more outrageous than and and quasi I feel I feel like he's not in his execution. Like, there's so much about Teen Titans that I am, like, in theory, I am, like, I am on board. Right. Like, I love the idea that he pulls them into the future to kill off Superboy and replace Superboy with not his evil clone, but the evil original, because Superboy was the evil clone who was actually good. I love that idea. It's such a completely fucking dumb idea. I am so on board. The execution is terrible. It's really dull. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, why you know, is that? But, but the idea is great. Right. Like, he, even his, uh, he's now on his second I Am Bringing Back Krypton storyline of his, <laughs> so far, one year story, one year tenure on the Superman books. So, <laughs> for a year, and he's on his second I Am Bringing Back Krypton oh, storyline. no, what is he both doing? Of them, both of them had completely fine concepts, mm-hmm. and the execution would kill you stone dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do you think that that's well? Is is that Lobdell, or do you think that that is the the infamous DC editorial office just kind of grinding everything I down to a paste? I think, I think it's Lobdell because when you read it, it's it's uh, idiosyncratic. It's just idiosyncratically dull. Mm, I see. I see. So, 
Huh. Well, that is, uh, that's kind of a shame. That's kind of a shame. Like, DC should really whack their shit out. Because I do realize, reading this, I was kind of like, oh, I'm really in the mood for weird, bad comics. You know, for whatever yeah. reason. It was like, just give them to me. Well, on, on, that, yes. on that topic, Jeff, mm-hmm. you should try for Evil Evil Rogue Rebellion. Really? See, I just jumped off the Flash train. Really? Is it really that? Tell me more. Um, it's the it's the Forever Evil tie-in that's kind of working for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in that it is pretty much the rogues have decided they're not going to go along with the crime syndicate's takeover of the world. Right. And so the crime syndicate are like, okay, then we'll just kill you. Right. But they didn't even say, we'll just kill you. They're like, we will just pay other people to kill you for us. So they're wanted people. Mm-hmm. None of their powers are working properly, and they're on the run across DC. Mm-hmm. That, that's all it is. Hmm. Why aren't their powers working correctly? For some reason, I'm like, I don't oh, sound oh, great uh, except for that part. <laughs> Death, Death Storm, who is the evil Firestorm, uh-huh. has, uh, has fucked with them somehow. Oh, I see. Okay. He's taken away Captain Cold's powers altogether, and he's done something to Mirror Masters. So basically, they go into a mirror, and they're immediately burped out somewhere else. Huh. Okay. Interesting. And who is is this uh, Bucalatello uh, writing this? Yes. Oh. Yes. And a guy called Scott Hepburn drawing, mm-hmm. uh, who is great. Oh, really? He was really good. And he's the fill-in guy, because it was originally supposed to be Patrick Zerker drawing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Scott Hepburn did half of issue one and all of issue two. Wow. Uh, and he's really nice. It's a really nice. Uh, I, I have no idea where he came from, but I really like his art. Huh. Interesting. Because I, uh, I quite like so Patrick Zerker's stuff, too, so... It's one of those. He's doing Suicide Squad. If you want to just follow him, well, see, that's it. I was following him with Alice Scott on Suicide Squad. That's kind of how I got into Zerker, and I was like, oh, I should really. But then when Cot was when Alice, yeah, when Alice left, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Plus, I, I, again, talking about you know competent but dull. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Kint is doing Suicide Squad, and it's competent but dull. Mm. Like the, this, I got this issue like say because it's got Omak in it, and I was like, hey. Great, yeah, and also Suicide Squad. You know how bad, how wrong can you go with Suicide Squad? And what you get is this comic that's completely fine, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> right. I, I, I guess that's what I've got here. Yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. there's nothing to make me think. Well, I definitely won't pick up the next issue, but there's also nothing to really make me think I want to pick up the next issue. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard. It is kind of, it is sort of, it's interesting because I'm sure there's listeners, long-term listeners of the show who are tearing their hair out uh, over my completely fickle heel turn from like, yeah, competence, let's get at some competence and creativity. And now I'm just like, yeah, let's, uh, a little less competence, just a little more, like bring the crazy, just like, let's get this unhinged, you know? So I, I apologize for being inconsistent. But yeah, I have to say, I... I mean, one of the things that was fun about Alice's Suicide Squad was it was a little, it was a little raw. It was a little not quite there. Like, you had faith that it was going to shape up to, you know, an end. But, you know, it was still, I don't know. It's funny. You know, sometimes you really, I do, I vacillate all over the place. And and this week really was like, let me just read stuff that is, um... Let me have some more nuts. Yeah, I'm let's have some more nuts. Bolts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well put. Well put. Thanks. Uh, this kind of ties in with something I was going to ask you. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you're reading Letter 44, the Oni series. No, I'm not. Uh, I, I really like the first two issues. Mm-hmm. But 
reading the second issue really brought it home to me that it is very much in the school of Lost, uh, or to use the comics thing, Morning Glories, mm. wherein you used to get uh, a series and it would have a long-form mythology, which is all based upon secrets that needed to be uncovered. Right. But you would have an A plot that would go from like A to Z and would finish, and the mythology would be the B plot. Yes. Then Lost come along and you have no A-plot anymore. Mm-hmm. Now it is all, what is the secret? 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 And that's all you have. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, Morning Glories is very much the same thing. Mm-hmm. Morning Glories is fine if you sign up for the entire thing. But even if, like, so for example, I just got the volume throw for it, the library. Mm-hmm. And you think that, you know, a collection of six issues would give you a beginning, middle, and end. And it does not in the slightest. Mm. You don't get a beginning. You don't get an end. It's all middle. Interesting. Um, and Letter 44, the second issue, just made me think, oh, this could be one of those books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, like, just that realization almost makes me want to be like, you know what? I'll come back and get you when you're done. Right, right. Who uh, Who's working on it and what's kind of it's, the uh, hook? It's Charles Sewell. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. It's writing. Uh, and Alberto Jimenez Albuquerque is drawing. Hmm. Uh, the setup is this. Uh, the... There has been an election that the president gets into office and he has a bold new liberal agenda. Uh, and when he gets there, he learns that there is a secret military slash space operation that has been going on that nobody knows about. Oh, right. Right. Did, right. God, did I, did I see a preview online? I think maybe I Probably saw a preview. Probably online. Also, the first issue was like 99 cents. It was it was promoted. Like, right. so you, you probably saw stuff online. Yeah. Um, and what it turns out is there are aliens in our solar system and they're building something. Mm-hmm. And there is a space mission where they're trying to find out what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone on board that mission will not come back to Earth. And they knew that going into it. Their job is to go there because they don't have enough power to get back to Earth, essentially. Right. Uh, and so their job is to find out what it is and mm-hmm. potentially make first contact. Hmm. And that is much that is basically as much as you know. There have been complications in the first two issues, but that is essentially the grand mythology from the first two issues. But it's one of those things where it's so big. Yeah. <laughs> so you're like, wow, I am going to say, I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, it does kind of have a big feel to it, which I, I'm sure is for people who are attracted to that sort of thing. But ironically enough, I do remember now, yeah, I saw something on Bleeding Cool about it. And reading the plot, I was just like, huh, that just leaves me cold. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know why. Um, you know, I think I think that we're kind of at a period of time where it feels like a lot of comics are trying to sort of swing for the fences, you know, I guess, yeah. with that kind of thing. And I guess good for them, but I'm I'm not sure how on board I am. I guess at the mo- at the moment, the, if you catch me this week, I'm like, dude, I just want to read some you know old Marvel comics. What what? But what is hilarious? So what is what you've said so far in this podcast is less professionalism, more big ideas. But then you're like, they're swinging for the fences, and I'm not into it. Well, okay. So, swinging, so what you want is big ideas that are basically resolved quickly. You want lots of fast big ideas? Yeah, I mean, well, no, when I say big ideas, I guess I just sort of mean like um, there is no – I mean, again, reading Batman, Batman stuff is pretty small. I mean, until you – even when you you know, you know move in Batman, you know, Grant Morrison's Leviathan, that's 
you know, there's like big overarching conspiracy stuff running through it. But I mean, one of the things about Tony Daniels is it's just kind of like there's a lot jammed in there because there's a lot of excitement. You know, it's like, oh, I've got like five new villains that I'm putting in the background and I'm going to introduce each one. And, you know, it's like the doll maker has like five people in his family and each one's got a new idea and a new design. And one of them's like one of those stupid, like monkeys with the symbols, but he's deadly, you know, but there's also just a lot, there's just a lot of excitement. There's a lot of vigor. There's a lot of things going on. Like Mm -hmm. uh, Scott Snyder and Capullo's Batman is pretty, um, you know, it's well done. It moves things forward. It builds towards this big idea and it builds toward it at a real sort of stately pace. But there's a little bit of that like stately pace that kind of just gets me tired. So I, I think that, yeah, in in terms of my little mental snapshot, part of me is like the big cosmic stuff. I'm like at the moment, I'm just I'm more interested in seeing dudes who are like super excited to tell to it's more a matter of excitement you know what i mean as opposed to the awe like oh i'm going to sell you on the biggest story it's like i just I, i'm perfectly happy to have a small story as long as you're telling it with a lot of verve and energy and creativity you know a, a great example and one of the things that fortunately in terms of me like hey i read good comics um, one of the things that I picked up, it was really excited by Dark Horse's uh, Digital's uh, 50% off sale, um, is, I, is I picked up Sintatulo uh, uh, by Cameron Stewart, which is great. Oh my god, that was so amazingly enjoyable to read as a oneer, I guess, you know. Um, and especially as it went on, you know, Stewart's man, his storytelling was so assured, but it just, it just moved. You know what I mean? It was, it was, he was clearly invested in his story. It was energetic as hell because of, I guess the, in part the webcomic origin, you know, but also, so the, the speed with which he had to develop things per page, like I was kind of great. In fact, and in fact, again, to be utterly contrary, I had this weird thing while with Sintatulo where the whole thing is a fragmentary sort of dreamlike narrative that keeps promising like a larger answer behind it, you know? And I remember at one point being like, oh man, I'm going to be really disappointed if he doesn't, you know, if he just kind of goes for like, um, like a velvet glove cast in iron route, you know, where it's like, Mm -hmm. it's all built around dreamlike imagery and ideas and ominousness. And then, the ending is going to be, you know, fairly oblique. Like, this really did sit down and explain to you, soup to nuts, why everything had happened the way that it was. And on the one hand, part of me is like, oh, that's great. And the other half of me, the part that is just completely impossible to please this month, was like, ah, oh, I think I would have preferred it if he hadn't answered that, you know? You are, you you want everything. You want the moon and a stick, Jeff. I, I you're, do. You're, you're really just having trouble. I've got a question for you. Yeah. Uh, is it not just possible that you just want comics that are told with passion and never mind the scale on which the story is told? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Sometimes I, I feel like those big scale stories are a way to hide, like, a, you know, a way to put that professionalism in context. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I mean to to sort of flip it to something that you haven't read. Um, Hickman's 
mm-hmm. Avengers and his Infinity crossover, I think is very much that. Right. It's something where there's not a lot of emotional connection and there's a lot of not there's not a lot of passion. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those. It doesn't matter. Look how well he's fucking planned the thing. Right. Look, it's all about the universe. Right. Um, and I. Uh, I mean, we've we've said this before about Hickman's work, yeah. but I, 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 you know, I started off off the Infinity Train, then got on the Infinity Train midway through, and I think he biffed the ending so horribly, really? so amazingly poorly, um, that I, it's it's probably knocks me off Hickman. It definitely is Avengers mm-hmm. for for a while because it's just the ending of Infinity is so bad because it ultimately just comes down to, and then the bad guys lost because they did. Wow. Well, that's not. There was so but, much in there but, that was kind twice. of capricious, really. But like, but twice. Not just, so. You have um, the builders basically get defeated off-panel. Yes, early on. Um, right. It, or between issues four and five. Okay. Um, because Captain Universe wakes up and she just takes care of them in a tie-in book, by the way. <laughs> um. So you know that is problematic in and of itself. Right. But then Thanos basically gets defeated uh, after a big fight because his son, who has been invented for the series, right. and who you have no idea what he can do, mm-hmm. encases him in like cosmic amber. Mm-hmm. So it can't, literally comes out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and it's not explained. Mm-hmm. It's like you might as well just basically say it, and his son had Thanos put away powers. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, uh, I, I, and, and so it's 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 horrendous, and like, right. but the sun is on panel for maybe at most the entire series, ten pages, and impossibly being generous. Wow, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he then he leaves the planet, so it's not <laughs> like he's going to be followed up in like in like you know Avengers next month, right? Well, uh, so yeah, it's it's horrible. It <sighs> it really really it was it's like went out of its way to be like this is a big fucking story, you guys. It's big. They've never faced anything this scale before. They've never never. How many pages have we got left? Okay, so now they've defeated them. It's fine. <laughs> Just keep going with us. Now they're gonna get Thanos. They'll never defeat him. They'll never look at punching him. They can't defeat him. Look, he's hitting them. Oh crap! They're oh wait, how many pages? Okay, and now he's done. <laughs> Right, yeah, that infinity, sounds bad. Infinity, infinity is really, really, really messes up the end. Uh, and it's one of those things. We were talking about this on Twitter yesterday mm-hmm. that um, Inhumanity came out this yes, week. And right. na- neither of us read it, right. but other people we know did. Mm-hmm. And everyone we know was like, wow, that was just 31 pages of exposition. Yeah. And then we found a review online where they're basically getting 10 out of 10 reviews <laughs> for being 31 pages of exposition. Yeah. And it's this really weird thing where it happened for Infinity as well. People are like, this is great because it's just all these stories it leaves possible. Right. Yes. And this is weird thing. We're like, but it didn't tell a story itself. Yeah. It didn't actually, like, it was not good in and of itself. And everyone was like, but look at what it's setting up. It's introduced the son of Thanos, you guys. You know, he's, he's got Thanos put away powers. It, yeah, who knows what he could do? It's amazing. <laughs> Literally, his powers are defined as his left hand brings death. His right hand brings something worse than death. That's the definition. <laughs> Which, which apparently is he touches you and he puts you in cosmic amber. Right, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, because I, I, fuck knows. <laughs> but um, 
but yeah, but you have people who are like, oh my god, just think right. of what he's done. Like, this is amazing. Now you've got, like, aliens and, and they know the Avengers exist and they, they're going to do stuff. Right. And it's this crazy thing where you're like, that's kind of where it was before. Right. Really? Yeah. But, I mean, what, what's, it, what's it really done? Uh, all it needed to do was tell a story and it kind of fell down. It, like, it did the beginning fine-ish it did the middle fine. I did. I say it did the middle really well. Yeah, you like the middle. So tell me a little up. more about the middle. What what really hooked you? What worked at that point that that worked for you? Um, the scale worked for me in the middle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The idea that it was something where the it was bigger than just Earth. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, the Earth wasn't really important because Earth at this point was like, you know, Thanos is invading Earth. Mm-hmm. But like for the, you know, and then the builders are coming, like really didn't involve Earth at all. It involved all these other aliens and all these other races and all these other planets who didn't really get along. And all they really had in favor, like in favor of working together was we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we should probably do something about this because we're all going to die otherwise. Mm-hmm. And like I was sold on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it did it did Grand Space Opera really well, mm-hmm. but it couldn't do End of Grand Space Opera really well. In part, I guess because Grand Space Opera doesn't really end. I guess I don't know. I mean, I mm, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. But it, it yeah, the middle the middle worked for me. I mean, uh, things sort of turned to to big old crap later on, arguably. I don't know. But one of the things that impressed me when I read uh, the Sinestro Corps War in Green Green Lantern was that that story did end. You know what I mean? Like, it's so totally built to... mm -hmm. Yeah, and it had something resembling an actual climax as well. It didn't just end. It wasn't just like, oh, and here is a guy who has Sinestro put away powers. Right, exactly. It was like, just so the opposite the of that. Emotional payoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. big time. Uh, yeah. But, well, but what's really interesting is then the more that John's built on that, mm-hmm. uh, the more he got towards the, and then it just ends because it ends. Right, right. The weaker like, by the time kind of climaxes got. Yeah, by the time you get to the end of his Green Lantern run, mm-hmm. it's it's really weak, and he's desperately trying to put in all the emotional payoff. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really is trying, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's so weightless at that point mm-hmm. because you kind of. I think the emotional capital of John's Green Lantern run was spent by the end of Blackest Night. Yeah, and he really should have jumped off then. Right. Right. Exactly. I kind of think so too because Blackest Night. I remember reading it, and as big and as goofy as it felt, and I have to admit, I'm hard pressed to remember. Like I know that it ends in a way that is all a couple of people being brought back to life and bringing in rolling in brightest day. But overall, there was enough of the I guess because there were enough individual beats of people dealing with their feelings about death or whatever. That is, by the time I got to the end of it, it was like okay, I felt. It's just that weird. It is that difference of like I feel like I'm being told a story as opposed to I feel like I'm reading another installment. You know? Yeah, and, and uh, Infinity definitely ends with to be continued. I mean, horrendously, because I mean, it pretty much is like, and now read in humanity. I would say read in humans, but that's been put back for four months and is quite clearly in terrible, terrible trouble. Really? Inf- Jeff, when you cancel a book as opposed to just postponing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you put it back three months, which means it goes into an entirely different solicitation cycle. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
I mean, yeah, that's. I when was not paying attention. Off, That's what happened, huh? Wow. Yeah, they, they canceled Infinite. Uh, sorry, Inhumans issue one and two altogether. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they're resoliciting for April and May, as opposed to January and February, wow. which means that they don't have to have the solicitation for issue one until January. Man. Huh. So, from that alone, ignoring all the rumors that are going around, they could, if they wanted change the entire creative team without penalty. Right. Right, right, right. Which it sounds like... And who who was the... Was it supposed to be Fraction and Coipel again? Like, is no, it's going to be Fra- Fraction and Joe Madeira. Oh. Or oh. Madeira. Madeira. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, no wonder why they cancelled that. <laughs> that's that's what everyone said. Huh. Yeah, and by, by everyone, you mean, like... You said that, and then you got no, that, no, 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 no. The internet um, had a collective Joe Mads on it. No wonder it get cancelled. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, uh... oh, we're, talking about, we're talking about endless storylines. Oh right. Yes. Okay. So I was saying yes. that uh, Infinity is literally an endless storyline because mm-hmm. Infinity goes uh, like literally ends up with uh, the last issue is. And all these aliens are are now, you know, aware of the Avengers, and they're all doing things, and they're all doing things for the Avengers. Read on. And by the way, Thanos' the son is around. Read on. Right. And it, you know, even the middle of Infinity is, and here's this Inhumans event. Right. Like so, there there is no end to Infinity. Right. Infinity literally just stops, and it reads like it just stops. Well, and this is what I think is kind of interesting is is that there was. I want to say it was Chad Nevitt, God bless his soul, who might have, you know, done the enormous overview. And if it wasn't him, it may well have been you, who did the enormous overview of Bendis' Avengers and basically said nothing ever wrapped up. Everything was just ended up moving into the next event, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of wonder if that's kind of... That's kind of the infinity feel, except they didn't really have a next event. I mean, you know, they've got well, a status it's, quo it's, that they're... It's all next event. That's right. the thing. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of where Marvel is at. And I just... I, it it didn't appeal to me really early on in Bendis's work. Uh, I'm just curious as to how much more of a success that they're going to have with that, you know? Well, Infinity sold really well, didn't it? It seems like it did. I was. I have to admit, for whatever reason, uh, I. You know what it is. Ever since Google Reader went away, Graham, I have not kept up with even my meager amount of of web surfing that I used to do. You know, because for a variety of other reasons, like I switched to Feedly, but then I just never used it because blah 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 stuff but i'm like so i i have to say i don't think that i've seen one of the paul o'brien's sales columns in maybe two or three months so i have no idea how that stuff's selling it's selling well i assume right yeah infinity well you know that uh you maybe don't uh you know that the walking dead was the most successful comic book in october right no in october yeah really yeah (laughs) like significantly um Infinity's yeah, Infinity like is the number four book in October, the number two and three book in September. So Infinity's selling fine. Yeah, it's selling great. That, yeah. I, I mean, I sort of assumed that it would be, but they, you know, because Marvel really well for one thing, Marvel put a lot of weight behind their event, and it also felt like a a good jumping on event. You know, not that I was reading Marvel, but I did get the sense of like, oh, okay, like. 
here is like they had their infinity is their free comic book day book, which I, mm-hmm. you know, since it was free, I think I read. And, you know, there was a lot of that, that chart of how to read the event couldn't have made things more clear. You know what I mean? It just kind of felt like, Oh, okay. So I can see where there'd be a lot of people who are between the promise, like, Oh, these are the big events. Thanos is involved and he's big. Hickman is, you know, big. Uh, and, and just that it seemed relatively like, like I could see that. Like I would have, if I was still buying Marvel books, I think I'm sure I would have picked up at least the first two issues of it. If not, if not three in, you know? Yeah. What, what's super curious is it was perfectly positioned. Mm-hmm. As like the starter event, it, uh, the guy who was teased at the end of the Avengers book, mm-hmm. it's tying in with the Avengers book. It, it's the free comic book day book of 2013. It's got the reading guide. Yeah, it was also the first couple of issues fucking impenetrable if you weren't reading the Avengers book. Right, right. Because it's like the builders are coming. You know all about the builders, right? And you know, you know, Captain America and Iron Man are. That's great. But by the way, here's Ex Nihilo. <laughs> right. Well, hope, you, hope you know who he is. She's right. going to solve everything. Captain Universe, and she's not even going to do it in this series. Hope you know who Captain Universe is. We're not going to explain it. It's it, like it was. It was very much, um, you know, this is your book for deep cuts. Right. Right. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. It was. Uh, and here's the thing: like Forever Evil is uh, arguably a worse comic book, although I'm not sure if I'd really say that at this point, now that Infinity's completely screwed the ending. Right. But it, Forever Evil has a much easier to understand high concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the evil version of the Justice League from another planet have come over and taken over the world. The end. Well, I just, I just kind of feel like, how do I put it? Like, if, I mean, apart from the way that they launched into that had a certain amount of drama, you know, I remember picking up Forever Evil 1, and it was, like, there was... Oh, issue issue 1's not good. No, it's not good, but it is one of those situations that I remember this pretty clearly, because there's that whole sequence with Lex Luthor, and the idea is, you catch Lex Luthor in the middle of being evil, and then he's out-eviled by these guys, and he pretty much, you know, vows to strike back at them. You know what I mean? He takes it poorly, yes. Yeah. And I mean, so how do I put it? Like, that is... that's It that, makes sense. It, yeah. It's comic book storytelling. You know what I mean? It's like that whole thing, like you said, who knows who X Nilo is? You know what I mean? Like, that idea that even if you can't figure out an evil Justice League in and of itself, you introduce... And that's the thing. It's not even like they show Lex Luthor writing checks, you know? They show Lex Luthor in the middle of being a shit and basically being frustrated and being like, oh, no, 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 I'm not putting up with this shit, you know? I'm just kind of like, like, there's a, like, it's like, John's is, no matter how much I feel like he's kind of gotten away, like, he, you know, not quite as in touch with his strengths, he is aware of what he's supposed to do, you know what I mean? There's kind, To me, there is kind of that satisfying, like, there's the structure, there's the hook, There's and here's a scene that is going to dramatize the hook, you know what I mean? And I really kind of, there's a lot, there was a lot in Hickman's Avengers, because I remember reading the, those first three issues, which introduce a lot of stuff that end up coming into Infinity, and introduce is really um, an over-generous description. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. He used them for the first time as opposed to introduce them. Exactly. So there's all this stuff that gets pulled in that you were just like, 
You know, it's like, I'm like, I know who Lex Luthor is. I even knew who Captain Universe was. But I appreciated the fact that you take the time to introduce who Lex Luthor is, you know what I mean? Rather than just being like, oh, and there's Lex Luthor, and he says he likes pie. You know what I okay, mean? Well, okay, we're getting... Wow, well, okay, likes pie. You really are going for the Captain Universe reference. <laughs> um, the, but what's really strange is, I'm kind of getting back to the professional thing again. Right. Is that because what Jones is doing is professional? Yeah. Uh, but I think that Hickman gets more applauded by the current mainstream of comic book readers, which is not a mainstream audience, but you know, mm-hmm. super superhero readers, the traditional superhero readers, right? Because I think what Johns does, and I think what he definitely did in, in Forever Evil Number One, is be too on the nose for the audience. Yes, like in Forever Evil Number One, actually has a scene where the crime syndicate show up. And the bad guys are like, it's the Justice League. Right. And then they kill a dude. Right. And they're like, oh, it's the evil Justice League. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, exactly. It's, it's too much on the, on the nose. nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, exactly. Well, okay, we got it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, At you that know, point, it's whereas, basically, yeah. Whereas what Hickman does is he doesn't explain anything. And the mainstream superhero reader reads that as, oh, he's treating me like an adult. Right. Like, they read into that. But that- it's not... Poor storytelling. They're reading that as, okay, he's giving me some credit. Right. And I think that's really, really fascinating. Because mm-hmm. I think that if you did, like, if a mainstream movie right. did that, you wouldn't see the audience being like, he's treating me like an adult. They'll be like, that just wasn't explained. Right. Well, Although, that said, have you seen the new Hunger Games movie? Uh, no, I just saw the first Hunger Games movie, which... Uh, which was great, I have to say. I mean, because I'm a fan of the books. So, but once I found, once it turned out that Edie was interested enough to where she'd want to see them, the second Hunger Games, it's like, okay. So we hunkered down, saw the first Hunger Games. I was curious as to what she would think. I was really shocked to watch it and be like, like, I know I'm a, I knew I was a Hunger Games fan because I like read all three books. I tweeted about it. I compared it to Jack Kirby. So, you know, there's a tip off right there. But like rewatching the movie, I was like, oh my God, I actually was way too like, they did a great job adapting that scene. Like, like I was like, huh, I'm a little more, I'm not, I must be, I am getting old. I am not fine. Exactly. I'm not in touch with my own fandom in a way that I used to be. You know, like when you're a kid and through the the miracle of being a comic book nerd, well into my 30s. Now I'm kind of like, oh, apparently this was really important to me because I am tremendously into this Hunger Games movie. Please tell me about the second Hunger Games movie. Well, what, I, what I'm fascinated about is the second Hunger Games movie uh, is something when I watched, I was totally into. Mm-hmm. And the longer I get away from it, the more I'm like, wow, it's actually fascinatingly put together, kind of shitty but the bits that work work so well mm. that you forget everything else. Interesting. Uh, the thing that completely fascinates me is there is no introductory exposition in the second film. Mm. Mm-hmm. There mm. is no like flashback. There is no, this is who these characters, this is who this character is. Right. They do it in the broadest of strokes. Yeah. And they do it in really oblique references, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to me. Because it is very comic-esque. It's very much like, okay, you're a fan, you know this, we don't have to spoon-feed you. Right. Which is really rare in a franchise movie. Yeah. Well, really rare. The point of, 
I'm not sure it really exists outside of the Marvel movies. You know, okay, so th- here's the thing that's rough is there's part of me because there's I would have to say your obsession of the last few months that I've never been very good at following up on Graham is this kind of idea that you've had it, maybe it's been in the front of your brain but it's been the back of our discussions which has been the way that the Marvel movies are have have already changed Hollywood you know because there was something else a few episodes back maybe I don't know if it was in our last episode but where you were talking your your thing about the the Marvel movies about the way that they where they load all their exposition. You yeah, yeah, I, that to I think that I think that might have been the the last episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's the same thing. It's basically saying to your audience, "Okay, you guys are going to keep track of the shit, so we don't have to do it. We don't have to spoon feed you." Right, 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 right. Which which is fascinating to me because normally movies, especially major franchise blockbusters, are all about the spoon feeding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which oh, I have to take a, a slight detour just because this has uh, come to mind. Did you see the thing about uh, Michael Bay talking about what's going to make his new Transformers film different from his old ones? <laughs> this is great because that so sounds like a joke. That sounds like the setup for a joke. <laughs> it's it's totally not. But uh, he said that his problem with the other ones mm-hmm. was that they were too goofy and not cinematic enough, and they weren't cool. And so he's going to make a cool cinematic Transformers movie. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> oh I man. cannot wait. After hearing that, you're like, I'm on board. Right, right. Crazy man. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just out of curiosity, do you think that that is, is Michael Bay being inspired by uh, the Marvel movies? Or or is it being in, him being inspired by the Batman movies? Because I, I do think... The, the Transformers did have a little – I think I know what he means because there was always that kind of like, hey, we need some racist caricature robots that make fart noises. You know what I, I that's mean? That's much what he said. Yeah. He was like yeah, – we, we went over – he actually said something like we went overboard with the goofy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that he kind of had a little bit of that – you know, between between Dark Knight, between Avengers, between Man of Steel, people are like, you know what? We don't We don't need that – we don't need to put in the little spoonful of non-fanboy sugar here, you know. It's like people are just going to swallow the the fanboy medicine straight, you know. Yeah. Um, which is which is what it sounds like. My thing is is I don't I haven't of course haven't seen the second Hunger Games, but one of the things that impressed me about the first Hunger Games was a the way, and I know it's a different director, the way that the director of the first Hunger Games movie went to the choices that they made to give their movie a verisimilitude, the way that they tried to set up the the um, the urgency, this is really happening, this really has stakes kind of yeah. feel to it, um, were a lot of decisions with film stock and the handheld camera options and a variety of things to give, you know, and, and the early wardrobe choices so that when they then move things up to the Panem and the more futuristic stuff, um, you know, they still had the options that they could give to keep it, you know, both immediate, but also with the weird connotations of quote unquote real. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, have. no, no. Yeah, totally. And I, I don't think that really falls through in the second. Mm. Uh, what my takeaway from the second was that it, the everything prior to Panem. Mm-hmm. felt kind of draggy to me mm-hmm. uh, and then as soon as the games began right 
it felt like a massive tempo change and I was so sucked in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And part of this might be I didn't know the stories part like I really was. Is Peter going to die? Like I have, you know, because there's definitely no way they're killing off Katniss and if only one person can survive this time, right. maybe Peter's going to die. So you kind of buy into that. Yeah. No, um, exactly. Exactly. She, there's so many smart – You once you get through all three movies, you should read the books because let me tell you – Well, ch- I, I'm – Yes. I might read. I might read the books now, in part because the last movie is two movies. Oh, they're doing okay. the, they're doing the Harry Potter things. So yeah, yeah. Um, but also in terms of pacing, the second film feels really surreal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because of the way it ends, mm-hmm. which I've been told by people who have read the books is pretty much how the book ends. Right, uh, but I have such problems with the film. It feels too much of a swerve mm-hmm. that, um, that I really want to read the book and see if it feels as completely unnatural and as completely hinky. Uh, interesting. I kind of – I'll have to – maybe I'll reread these for the holiday because I'm like – I thought it ended with a quasi-Empire Strikes Back ending for – It does. One. It does. Okay, okay. okay. Um, but so – I, I, I was going to say spoiler, but you've read the book. Um, <laughs> right. Spoilers for people who haven't seen the film or read the books. Uh, the movie ends with she shoots the arrow into the sky, which shorts out everything. Mm-hmm. She blacks out. She wakes up. She's on her craft. Uh, she goes through, and it is her boyfriend and the Lenny Gravis character, whose name I can't remember, and the Philip C. Hoffman character, whose name I can't remember. And they're like, it's rebellion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly, uh, but but that scene is so rushed to me. Right, like her waking up to the cliffhanger is so rushed that it feels like they were like, "Oh shit, we've got five minutes left, and we've got to say it's rebellion." Well, you know, but it, that is unfortunately that and, is true to the book, and that is like the second book is the hardest is the most difficult book in the series. I mean, it's interesting because there's a variety of people who apparent so I am told. Uh, split on kind of like what's the more problematic Hunger Games book like the second book or the third book you know I understand why the second the second book is a lot of problem solving that I appreciated from a craft perspective but I can totally see why it would make for a completely fucked up experience as a movie because it really is it looks like it's a very clunky, like, oh, here's how we're giving you the sequel to where it's like another Hunger Games, but with bigger stakes, kind of that traditional sequel yeah, concept. Yeah, and, and, and then we totally pull the, the rug out from under you and you get see, – exactly. my problem is there, there's again, and this is kind of what we are talking about before, mm-hmm. there's no uh, real ending to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you you don't get you don't get you know to use the TV parlance you don't get an A story mm-hmm. anymore because mm-hmm. it all it's like and then the games are over because of this right. and so you don't really get the any sense of climax you just get the because at least in in Empire Strikes Back you did because you had Luke battling Darth Vader right right you know right so so you, so you do have more of a sense of this is the big climactic moment mm-hmm. and it, you know and the, the it ends badly because the good guys lose. Yes, but it ends. It comes to a natural break point. Yeah, no, there is a and, there is a natural and, break. And catching catching fire doesn't. Right, right. Catching fire literally catching fire weirdly enough ends in the same way that uh, Trinity War ended. And you, I don't know if you remember my problems with the end of Trinity War because it doesn't end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it literally ends with this is happening. Right. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, huh. Interesting. I, you know, I'd have to revisit it because for me, uh, maybe part of it was the like reading it when I did. I knew there was three books, I suppose. Um, you know, I have a really fascinating theory. I'll have to wait until I see the second movie. But one of the things that really makes The Hunger Games, the first book, work, which they could understandably couldn't really get to in the movie, is the way, is is basically how well I thought Suzanne Collins worked the meta, you know, in The Hunger Games. Because the first book is um you know all of Katniss's choices that she makes are is are very are are always she's always being aware that all of her decisions are essentially political ones you know in the book Peta is the guy who really is she doesn't trust him because he's more of the political game player you know what i mean oh, like I'm so, glad, I'm so glad you said that oh good Really? Why? Uh, yeah, because uh, in the wired sort of virtual chat room, mm-hmm. um, we had been discussing whether Peter was political or passive. We were, dis- we were discussing gender roles in the Hunger Games. Oh, I see. Right, right. That there's definitely a reading wherein Peter is entirely passive and the damsel in distress. Right. Uh, and I was saying that I, that's what I thought he was there for, but also that I couldn't believe him in that role because he just seemed too political. And too manipulative for me to to believe that to to fall for that, and as uh, such, Katniss's dedication to him rang hollow to me. Right, because a part of me was like, "Well, I don't trust him, therefore Katniss shouldn't trust him." Because Katniss trusts him, I am now doubtful of her judgment. Oh my God! Well, then you would love the Hunger Games book because the first <laughs> book. One of the things is because Peta is shown is she, I mean it's all told from first person her perspective. So yeah, the first Hunger Games book. One of the things that I, I think you'll be amused by is the idea that Peta is the game player, is the guy who's very aware of the political situations and is the one who's playing the audience and is the one who I think in, in the book he is the one who sort of half suggests the romance. That um, Hanslick or whatever the hell his name is, Heimlich, Woody Harrelson's character, you know, is like, yeah, let's go, let's go along with this, you know. Um, yeah. But so Katniss is basically always thinking that Peta is is playing the game in the first book, and then the second book things are a little more complicated. But it is it is precisely that her part of it is her own inability to believe. The gender reversal, I suppose, that is at the heart of the of the book, that makes it really satisfying. And the other part, the meta that really works, is the fact that Katniss, at every stage, is aware that she has to, basically, that she has to have romantic interests. That you know, all that stuff of her dressing up and looking pretty, and all the traditional femininity that is that is forced on her in the book. Um, this is forced on her by the Hunger Games producers, um, is also the meta expectations of what's demanded of a heroine in sort of a young adult novel with a female protagonist. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the scenes where she contemplates romance and it is very much this deliberate contemplation 
like she's aware that all these eyes are watching her. And it's this beautiful, like if Grant Morrison had done it, people would be all over it. You know what I mean? Because it's very obvious that what Collins is talking about is literally the experience of the readers, not the experience of the, the Hunger Game watchers, you know, mm-hmm. um, is so it's part of what to me really makes the book first book work so well. And then when the the open rebellion, the whole concept of 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 basically overthrowing the status quo becomes the becomes a cornerstone of the third book. It's um you know, it's it's relatively it's it's a very nuanced take. And also part of what happens in the third book without giving too much away is is that Katniss as revolutionary has to deal with the way that the the revolutionaries spin her image and she once again becomes a like in in all of the books she at every time has to deal with her ongoing objectification i suppose mm-hmm. yeah. and 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 her struggle even as she understands her fights against her own objectification her inability to sort of trust herself or out, see outside of the other narratives being forced on the people around her is is kind of what makes the kind of what makes the stuff really work and i see that sounds that sounds great and it, i feel like all of that is present under the surface in the book mm-hmm. in, the, in the movies rather uh but is is so subtextual that you can't quite be sure whether it's actually there or whether you're reading into it oh uh yeah and, and, I, and so I, I'd, I'd be super curious to see it where it's essentially part of the text and not the subtext well I, how do i put it i think that you're going to think i think you're going to read them and be like no that's still part of the subtext but it seems like a clearer piece of the subtext you know what I mean? Like you could read yeah. it and be like, "Oh, you're totally wrong," but I think you'll read it and be like, "Yeah, it's not re- it's not super well developed, but it's clearly there." But it's there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, for the most part, I, the most part, I really was the Hunger Games was like such a uh, was a really impressive adaptation for for me in that regard. Was Catching Fire like crazy long? Because you know the first the first Hunger Games movie was like two and a uh, half I, hours. I want to say. It was- yeah, I want to say it's two hours. Oh, really? Did they actually trim the running time down a little bit? Huh. I don't know. I'll, I'll look. I, I can tell you that, like like I said, it dragged until they got to Pana. Right. Uh, and then it didn't. Right. Right. So, I don't know. And also, I went to the Baghdad, which is the local uh, movie here, the mm-hmm. theater, because um, they have now reopened as a first-run movie theater. <gasps> what? 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 The Baghdad's now first run? When? <laughs> what? When did that? Why? What? Uh, just, just like a week ago, two weeks ago. Shit. Okay. Um, it's now, I mean, it's still cheap. It's still like $8 and you still get uh, food and booze. And in fact, you get more booze. They now have cocktails. Oh, great. Uh, they have a full bar there. Um, it is 146 minutes, so two, like two and a half hours. Okay. Okay. Cause I, I couldn't imagine that it would be any shorter because the books are, I mean... In that sense, they're they're only going to they're all going to stay that length. In fact, that's why I think breaking the breaking the third book into two movies is almost a sensible decision if they can structure it right. Well, it's, yeah, they've they've got a lot to do mm-hmm. in that last you know movie slash two movies. So I, I'm not surprised that they were like, let's split it into two. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, it seems like a very common franchise milking decision these days, but but it, it also made sense to me for that last Harry Potter book, which was like 11,000 pages or something, right? So And also made two reasonably long films that did not feel like they were stretched out. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's kind of, I don't know, it's, mm, you know, yeah. maybe Hollywood's yeah. figuring this franchise thing out. I don't know. Well, wait, didn't we have, didn't you have a point about the Marvel movies, which is that the, was the lack of exposition. And my point was, is that with two and a half hour movies, maybe that much, you know what I mean? Like you can't, maybe exposition just seems like a luxury. It seems like the first thing that you can cut. I just, it's super weird because if, uh, and I always go back to Star Wars with this, but Star Wars literally starts with an exposition dump in the firm. Graham? Hello. Oh my God! What? That was that was super weird. <laughs> that was. What do you think? Do you think should I call you back? Should I do a whole thing? I have thing, I have called you back. This is me calling you back. Oh really? Yeah, well, we get disconnected, and I called you back. It, it just said connecting, but I didn't hear. I didn't get the boing. You know, sort of. Yeah, no, I, I did. I did. Jesus Christ. Um, what I was saying was, in Star Wars, you get the you get it starts with the exposition. It starts with the scroll. Yes, and that seems graceful. Is the wrong way of putting it. It's a fucking, <laughs> but uh, it's a way of giving you the information. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that I find it weird to think that you couldn't even do that if you had to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but in you know, Catching Fire doesn't do that, and I think. That's actually a relatively smart move because mm-hmm. I think it has enough of a fan base and enough uh, awareness. You know everything by the broad strokes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah you're yeah. not. You're not going to go into the second Catching Fire movie and uh, second Hunger Games movie and not understand what the, the Hunger Games are. Right. You know, and I think the Marvel movies are doing a really similar thing, which is I think it is taking for granted that the people who see those movies have signed on for all of the movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they feel completely confident in saying, we're going to set up, you know, Avengers 3 mm-hmm. via the end of Avengers 1 and Thor 2 and Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> Which, you know, when you say it like that, sounds nuts. Yeah, that does sound insane. That's absolutely nuts. Right. But I think if they have gambled and if they are correct in gambling, that people who show up for Avengers 3 will have seen all the other movies. And I think that's completely reasonable to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then why not? Why not just offload that? Right. Because it means Avengers get shorter as a result. Because you don't have to be like, so there's this guy called Thanos, right? And there's right. these things called the Infinity Gems. Right. And the Infinity Gems go together to make the Infinity Gauntlet. And the Infinity Gauntlet, some of it's on Asgard and some of it's in space. And so, you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. If you can do that in the other films. Mm-hmm. And in the process of doing that in the other films, basically do – I mean all the Marvel like end credit stuff is the movie version of the Bullpen Bulletins. Mm-hmm. You know, you're our fans. You stuck around after the credits. We're going to give you something extra. <laughs> so, you know, if you can basically give your audience the exposition and make them feel lucky for getting it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then it's a win-win. Right. Right. I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. Well, yeah, at least financially it's a win-win, I suppose. You know? Um, did you see the trailer for Spider-Man 2? I did. What did you think? 
Holy crap, that's a busy-looking film. Is it? Wow. I really, you know, which may be a good thing, I have to say, because I have to, I really remember, like, just, just even a few days ago, I was like, man, maybe I'll skip this second Spider-Man movie. You know, because I, the first one was so underwhelming. They did such here a shit the, job. Here are the bad guys who are in the Spider-Man 2 trailer, Jeff. Right. The Rhino? Yeah. Electro? Yes. And two different green goblins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, you get Dr. Octopus's harness and the vulture's wings. <laughs> All that's in the fucking trailer. And you get a flashback to uh, Peter Parker's dad fighting some other dude. Yeah. Right, I know. Exactly. So it's kind of... Well, so it looks like they're really going for a full-on sort of, although modified, Sinister Six there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, they've been teasing Sinister Six for a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I guess you have all the six by the end of this film if you're encountering Dr. Octopus and Vulture. Right. That, right. That'll be six bad guys. Um, yeah, so, you know, I guess that's what they're doing. It's fascinating to me as a fan of Spider-Man that I am, mm-hmm. or rather the era of Spider-Man that I'm a fan of, right. um, to see them pulling so much from the ultimate Spider-Man mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, because part of me is like, what? Peter Parker's dad isn't a fucking scientist? That's yeah. yeah. And then, like, oh, but he is an ultimate Spider-Man. Right. Right. You know, Oscorp. Oscorp is behind all the bad guys. What? Oh, wait, no, but they are an ultimate Spider-Man. Right. Right, right, right. Exactly. So it, it's it's really weird to me because I have this like you know that's not what it is. Oh, but it is. Yeah. Well, and those are how do I put it? It's one of the things that actually drives me nuts because Ultimate Spider-Man had a little bit of the here's how you know the 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 idea that Miller put forward, Mark Miller put forward for the Ultimate Universe, which is like let's do let's reinvent do the movie reinvention of these characters before Hollywood does, you know, so that yeah. we get to do all the cool stuff. And and also the, the tidying of the house, you know what I mean? And I understand some of those choices, but one of the things that, that bummed me, didn't bother me so much in Ultimate Spider-Man, but did in that first Spider-Man movie, is the way in which it just makes, it just makes everything too, it makes everything too tidy. You know? Yeah, exactly. There's absolutely no coincidence anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like, why did Peter Parker do this? And, you know, I fully expect by the third film, they're going to be like, because he was genetically programmed by his father. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then you're like, well, then it's not the same story. It's not the same story at all. You know, it's a hugely, vastly different story that pretty much turns it into the majority of a lot of bullshit Hollywood movies structure anyway you know what i mean it just becomes that have you not noticed this kind of has become the comic superhero mo as well no longer is it an accident it's almost always genetic destiny Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know that you're a mutant or you're an inhuman right or you know your father programmed you or you're no uh in iron man's case now you are the adopted son of you know, a scientific genius who tried to genetically manipulate his actual son, mm-hmm. you know, his, his birth son, to be this guy. Like, it's all, it feels like there's, you can't, it's not enough anymore to just be the right guy in the wrong place anymore. Well, do you think that that is a weird, um, kind of, uh, you know, that these things, 
follow our own, I guess, national beliefs. You know what well, I mean? I, I'm I'm super curious about that because mm-hmm. it's it's very as much uh, you know it's it's very manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very much we we were always special. Well, okay. There's the we are always special in the natural aristocracy angle of it, but I also feel that there's a little bit of the, which you know, which American narratives, of course, are suckers for for exactly that reason, as you point out. But there's also, to me, there's the there's the modern take on it, which is a little bit of the, you know, that that I feel we see a lot in America now, which is kind of like it doesn't really matter what you do; what matters is it matter. You know, it's kind of an accident of birth. You know what I mean? You either end up being born with the opportunities, or you don't. And if you don't have the op, you know, back in the day we had that thing of like, okay, so you got an opportunity, usually a you know some sort of radioactive accident, and you made the most of it. But now it's more kind of this idea of, well, yeah, you you can do great things because of what, because of your lineage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's not anyone can be a superhero. It's a you can be a superhero if you know the right people. Right, if you know the right people and you were born into the right family. You know? Yeah, and 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 there is there is an element of like there's part of me that's kind of like well that's. You know, that's a really frustrating narrative. You know, it, it's frustrating to me when it's when it's angled in the and, – and Lucas was a huge, you know, resuscitator, I think, of that of that concept. You know, Star Wars, the Jedi Knights, and, and particularly the concept of Luke Skywalker himself runs from that, like, oh, your lineage, you know, you are great because you're from a great lineage kind of thing. You know, and also you have to redeem – your family bloodline. And again, it's all that stuff where once Lucas really gets into the Joseph Campbell crap, that, that, that gets like super like fed force fed down your gullet. Um, it bothered me before when it was kind of a con, a, a concept of elitism as a sort of coded message of frustrated cynicism. I think that it, I, I respond to it more, you know, really? Well, I don't. I, okay, no. My really is this: Do you think it's actually uh, coded cynicism? I honestly, I think it's that idea of you know the the one thing is successful, so it gets churned out over and over and over and over and over again. So I don't, I don't really know. I mean, weirdly, one could say that between Iron Man and Batman, I feel in Hollywood there's more of a self-made man thing, like. Self-made man thing. Self-made man. <laughs> Self-made man thing was the greatest of the Marvel titles. Seriously, <laughs> that would be great. You know, giant-sized man thing. It's nothing like self-made man thing, baby. Uh, I, the the idea that those dudes are like rich, but then they—that's almost like beside the point. You know, it's what they go on to accomplish. You know, is like a weird. Like I guess because they're already oh, but, but, coming from that weird Republican but, standpoint, I guess. But there's also the the second narrative of that, which is essentially the people of luxury who then have to redeem themselves. Right. You know, so it's you get the double. You can play to every audience with that. Exactly. Because you have you have the they did it themselves. Right. But you also have the 
they came from this privileged background, but then they still had to prove themselves. Right. Like, you play both angles. Right. And I think that angle is incredibly successful for cinema. You know what I mean? Because as a rule of thumb, the audiences like seeing the haves. You know what I mean? It's yeah. uh, it is that we do lo- we do go to the movies for glamour, and it's a little hard to pull off glamour without all the cool trappings and shit. You know what I mean? So there's always well, kind of that. how you define glamour. Because I mean, you could then go to you know Man of Steel and Superman, and you have a fetishization of the American heartland, right. which has been present in Superman for the longest time. Right. Which is like Superman doesn't come from Kansas anymore. Superman comes from fantasy Kansas where everyone is good old folk right. who are, you know, good and moral in a way that big city folk just aren't. Right. Which is, which is, I mean, that was one of the smartest choices made, I think, in Richard Donner's Superman. You know, like one of the smartest choices made in that movie right out of the gate was the idea of making Clark Kent from come from mythical small town America you know it was the fact that his dad was Glenn Ford means like yeah this Superman is the son of the western is the son of of what we of cinematic America you know Mm -hmm. um and so that that actually doesn't surprise me I think that that's one of the that's that's sort of I feel how Superman kind of got reborn Born, I suppose. You know what I mean? Like his recreation back in the. He got 70s. reborn when he got killed by a doomsday. That's a bullet, Jeff. You're you're a you're a fake fanboy. <laughs> Didn't you know that? That would be great. I'm a fake geek girl. Ah. <laughs> uh, but but it's like I don't know because you how does you know how does Thor and Captain America fit into this narrative then? Well, that that is actually a really good question because I haven't seen. Um, I saw I saw the first movie of each, and in fact, the part the first half of Captain America that works really well comes from that idea. Like Captain America rolls in at the at the perfect time because the greatest generation myth is already in full effect in America. Yeah, yeah. you know, and so it it becomes that like it becomes much easier in that sense to to reinvent Cap. Thor's actually more of a mixed bag, which is why, to me, that first movie is, well, the action scenes are all terrible, but, you know, this, this, the, the weird way they went about it was kind of this weird, it's like Splash, it's like a weird romantic comedy, you know, except instead of it being a blonde mermaid female, it's a blonde Viking dude. You know Did you mean? see the the? I can't remember which. I want to say it might have been Slate. Someone did a story where they're like, "Has everyone realized that the second Thor film is is Crocodile Dundee two? <laughs> really? They were like, they were like the first. If you think about it, the first Thor film, right? Thor is Paul Hogan and mm-hmm. Asgard is Australia. Mm-hmm. And the second one is Crocodile Dundee two because he takes his American girlfriend back to Australia. And then it's all about dealing with his family and his mythology. Mm. <laughs> That's pretty genius. I, I know. I was like, oh shit, I can't watch the new Thor film now. <laughs> <laughs> it's been ruined for me. I'll just see Paul Hogan. That's right. 
That's right. Um, yeah, I, I I will prevent us from from digressing, but it actually reminds me of a tremendous uh, weird throwaway flight of the Concords in joke that maybe I'll tell you about later. Um, or not. Maybe I'll just bore everyone with it now. What the hell? So we're re-watching Flight of the Concords, thanks to the miracle of having HBO Go. Um, and uh, you know sort of the premise of the show, such as yeah, the premise yeah. might be, right? Yeah. For those who don't, just in case, uh, the Flight of the Concords are two New Zealand musicians who are uh, in in what's even described in the show as a novelty musical band, you know, uh, and they are trying to make it while living in, I want to say Brooklyn, but the fact of the matter is I think they actually live in New York because at several points they talk about going to Brooklyn in impressively realistic, squalid conditions. Uh, and, you know, most of the episodes are really constructed as ways to, 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 cut, to make sure that they have two or so musical numbers per episode from the Concord's various joke songs that they've built up from their years of touring. And, um, but one of the things that's great is, is at one point, and they're always dealing with their manager who they're, you know, hoping to, uh, who works for the New Zealand consulate. And they're always trying to get gigs while in the process of, you know, always constantly being mistaken from Australians and nobody knowing where New Zealand's from. So at one point they are complaining that the, their manager Murray hit hasn't gotten them anything. And, and Murray's like, well, I got you that ad in novelty, novelty musician weekly. Uh, <laughs> and he holds up this ad and it's just like, it's super quick, but it's a photo of them. That's super small. Like it, they're taken against a building. And then that, that photo itself is like, you know, shrunken underneath the, the phrase, um, tenacious Dundee. And I just love <laughs> that that is that to me, it's just this huge throwaway joke, but I love whoever came up with it because of that idea of like, just compare both comparing them to tenacious D, which had had their own HBO, you know, show earlier. And were also an acoustic novelty musical band. And the fact that throughout the show, they keep getting, confused for Australians. I just, I adore that. So, um, so joke over. Hey, Crocodile Dundee too. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the wackiest podcast we've done for a while. It kind of is. We really should. Can you like play the banjo or something like that? I feel like we really should like break out the spoons and we can just like do some sort of musical number now. Maybe it's the Fly of the Concords reference, but like we really have had just about every goddamn thing. Oh, so let me tell you about Wonder Woman. My ultimate yes, yes, frustration where we, like where we started, yes. is I love the Fast and the Furious movies. And oh my God, I guess we could in that sense talk about Paul Walker as well, which is kind of such a huge shame. But Gail Godot, who was oh, I only knew from the Fast and the Furious movies and saw her in two of them, three of them. I have to say... On the one hand, I can see like her the fact that she's Israeli and she has that accent instantly I have that weird like oh, okay, so this means that Wonder Woman is going to be from somewhere else, you know what I mean like she's not gonna lose that accent uh and I don't know if that's like a good choice or not, but it's it is clearly shows signs of a choice being made. My frustration is just that Gal Gadot. Although, you know, one of the things that was great about the Fast and the Furious 
uh, franchise is not many of those guys can carry their own movie. You know what I mean? Including, arguably, Vin Diesel. You know what I mean? So one of the things that was great about Fast and the Furious is, as ensemble players, they were all terrific. Um, You know, or they were terrific enough in the context of everything else when you threw in awesome act awesomely absurd action sequences but Gal Gadot herself is really gravitas free and she's not an especially good actress you know what I mean like that's mm-hmm. and to me that's the thing that's kind of heartbreaking is is that by having her it's not just that they cast her and they're putting her in a Man of Steel movie it's like they are pretty much casting someone who I think will never be able to carry their own franchise. You know, now I could be wrong. Christ knows, like, who's that one guy, the guy who started an Avatar, who was in two Clash of the Titans movies? Sam, Sam something? Right, Huntington? exactly. Sam Worthington? Worthington. Worthington. Yeah, exactly. Sam Worthington. That dude was, you know, also similarly gravitas-free. And... I don't know. Maybe people hey, said he could he, act. He got yeah. He got Avatar and he got Terminator. Yeah. Admittedly, the stillborn Terminator film. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. I, I. Also, here's the thing. Chris Hemsworth. It's many things. He is not the greatest actor. Who you'd be like? I'm definitely going to base a franchise around him. If Marvel can get away with it with Thor, I don't know, man. I'm not sure I agree with you. I know that's going to sound weird, but actually, I I would say that Chris Hemsworth, given a choice between him and and Saul Sam Worthington, I say that Hemsworth, like you cut Hemsworth at the beginning of Star Trek, he was. Oh, that's that's a different Hemsworth. No, that's that's him. That's no, not. A that's one. not. It's that's not brother. Liam. That's not Liam. That's Chris I'm, Hemsworth. No, I'm fairly sure that's no, Liam. No. I am. I am. No, almost 90. I no he's the too old. On. Get, I'm, the okay, I'm, go, I'm going. I am to be it. I'm going to IMDb I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is just you're wrong, Jack. You're wrong. I know. I know you think so. And yet. Okay, hold on. Uh, that's why I actually type Star Trek. I don't Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, Chris Helmsworth. Yeah, Chris Helmsworth was George Kirk. Chris Hemsworth. I win! I can't say his name right, but I win! Thor was right. Captain Kirk's dad. Yeah, that's what but, I'm but saying. But again, he was Captain Kirk's dad who died in like five minutes into the film. But he was good, Graham. That's not move goalposts. I'm not saying he could have, he was an entire movie worth of good, but seriously, I think, I think Hemsworth has chops. He's got chops. I know other people disagree. I, now, I, I that think being said, I think... As much, as many chops as some... Sam, I can't remember his last name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, say what you like. At least Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth has a memorable name. He does, doesn't he? He really does. I, dude, okay, well, how's this? I'm sort of half suspecting that Chris Hemsworth does not give a shit about being Thor and is probably gives off a certain je ne sais, I'm sorry I signed this contract. But, oh no no! I, I I quite believe like I'm, I'd be super curious to see the uh, film where he's the race car driver that I can't remember the name of. Oh right, um, yeah 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 right. In, in order, in order to see like what that? he's like in that. Yeah. Although I have to admit, I have no other reason to want to see that film. Well, I, I was about to say that movie. Like I looked at that movie and I'm like, oh, that is I no, I I really did not want to see that. But it would now that you mention it, I'm like, yeah, maybe that'll show us that he can act. But I mean, you know, him Cabin in the Woods, various other stuff. I think he's got. 
potential. You know, I, and I, so, but I, so Gail Godot, I really honestly think even by our diminished franchise carrying standards does not have enough oomph to really carry it. You know, like people who are like, oh, she's not buff enough. You know what I mean? It's like going straight. Well, that was all ridiculous. Like all, all the, you know, she doesn't look like Wonder Woman is just stupid stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I thought that that was... But, I mean, that always is stupid stuff. That's always the stuff where they're like, oh, Tobey Maguire doesn't look like he's... You know, or who, whomever whomever the internet is wrong about. The internet's wrong about. Because, God, do you remember when, like, Wizard Magazine would be like, we cast the Blah Blah movie, and you would read their casting choices, and it really was that terrible, like, you know, just literally whoever looked the most like the character was going to be cast, you know? Oh yeah. No, you could never, you could never imagine a film that the internet would cast. Cause it would be the worst film. <laughs> it would be great. It really would be great. But yeah, exactly. So in that sense, so my, my real problem with her really was like, uh, ah, really like just, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe cause God knows it's not like the fast and the furious, uh, franchise was particularly demanding on anyone. You know, in terms of their acting chops, maybe her attitude towards Fast and Furious is the same as Chris Hemsworth towards um, Thor. Nah. Maybe she's great. Nah. See, that's the thing. She was clearly she was clearly down for Fast and the Furious. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but you know, she's got scenes where she's supposed to have the love thing going on with uh, what's his name and. I just, mm, I don't know. You know, you you might, you could be right. I I just, I really was like, she's there, but she's 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 no Natasha Henstridge. You know what I mean? Like, oh man! <laughs> I know on that low blow. Honestly, I said that because I always thought that Natasha Henstridge, uh, at one point, she had potential. You know, when. That you know that um, Jean Claude Van Damme movie with the twins. I'm sorry, your opinion is immediately invalid. Oh, okay. I I will have people Jeff back Dangel, me up. Jeff Dangel, that Jean Claude Van Damme film. Right now, Sean Mitzke is like, "You're right, Jeff," and just shouting at me. <laughs> well, all right, and there we have it. So, um... oh man. Okay, I I think we need to call it. If only because you're beginning to fade out in me as well. Oh shit. Okay, well, this was this was this, uh, this was a weird podcast, but ladies and gentlemen, it's what you're getting. It is. <laughs> we both apologize and demand tribute. So, uh, <laughs> yes, who will volunteer as tribute, Jeff? I'm sorry. What did what did you say, Ron? I said, who will volunteer as tribute? Oh, as tribute. For some reason, as tribute, I was like, wait, did he say stripute? Like, I was like, hmm. who will volunteer to strip you, Jeff? <laughs> See, that sounds closer to what it sounded. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, who's been reading my secret Tumblr? That's not cool. Um, everybody, we are not going to be back next week after this strange grab bag. You're probably relieved. Uh, yeah, could... uh, sorry, everyone. I am traveling and uh, causing complete havoc with our schedule. But we will be back two weeks from now. That's right. We will to give you, I don't know, maybe. See, this is the problem. Uh, I totally wanted to do uh, like best of list, but I, looking at everyone else's list, I realize I'm really, really underread this year. Like, really underread. 
you know. Uh, me too, but I can tell you that when we talk next, I will have uh, completed the comic known as The End of the Fucking World, which I finally have. Oh, hey! Terrific! Wow. So, I, yeah, let's let's talk Charles Foreman next week. That or sounds... Two, two weeks from now. Two weeks from now. Yeah, next time we talk, we will talk End of the Fucking World. Um, I, I said good things about Sin Titulo in a weird, grumpy, crabby way. That's a great book to get a hold of uh, if you haven't yet. Um you know, my crabbiness aside. And we'll, we'll come up with some other strange um, uh, discussion choices. Hopefully, we pray to God not as strange as this. Anyone, yeah, anyone who's listened to us before ever knows that we'll come up with some strange discussion choices. Maybe slightly more comics choices than we did this time, because this one's kind of like a movie podcast. There's a lot of movies in here. There's a lot of movies, although, I don't know, I spent a lot of time talking bad Batman comics. And you... that's, that's true. That's yeah. true. So... Yeah, uh, I'd say the one thing I'll say before we go is I have loved that this week has shown the incredibly short attention span of the comics internet. If you think about it, it was only yesterday that Wonder Woman was announced as the actress, <laughs> and since then we've been like Wonder Woman. I have I have feelings about Wonder Woman, and then it was I have feelings about the Spider Man trailer, and just before we started recording, it was I have feelings about X Men: Age of Apocalypse as a movie. It's crazy. Oh, is it, was that announced as the next movie or something? Uh, Brian Singer uh, tweeted X-Men Apocalypse coming 2016, and there's now a date. But we don't know if it's an Age of Apocalypse movie. Oh, I see. I see. But it probably is, because if you think about it, Age of Apocalypse will happen when someone fucked up the timeline in X-Men, and the plot of the next X-Men film is someone fucking up the timeline. Right, 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 right. So, so it would only make sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yes. So, on that merry note, by the time we talk next time, Graham and I won't remember that at all, and we'll be on to something else. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, by the time you hear this, Stephen Internet, which will be four days from now, we will be, judging by the past few days, seven comic scandals behind. <laughs> Internet will have been really upset about something seven different times. And you won't even remember what tomorrow's is. Yeah. We know stuff, but like, we don't even know things that are happening that you will have forgotten. Oh, man. Just well, think about that, internet. My God. All right, and on that merry note... Bye! God, God help us all.